So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. While you can't see it from far away, when you actually go in those communities from the last 15 years, you are seeing not just changes in individuals, but changes in communities and how they're beginning to interact with each other now. And what people think is impossible in the Middle East, they'll never get along. There are pockets, and I emphasize pockets, I'm not saying the whole country, I'm not saying all this is solved, but there are pockets of communities now that are seeing each other and interacting with each other differently. And and basketball was sort of the impetus for that. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got a mentor of mine, a friend, author of Dangerous Love, Chad Ford. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Jess, thanks uh, for having me on. It's It's been a long time, but I've always always excited to get in conversation with you. <laughs> I'm just going to start off with, I think this is Arbinger week because yesterday I had Chip Huth on and the day before I had Bob Morley on. So okay. this is officially Arbinger week. Those um, are great. That, that's, those are tough acts to follow. Yeah. Yeah. So you've done so many things in life. Can, can you give people just a quick overview of from the NBA to crazy international mediations to teaching university to writing the book and these kind of things? Yeah, I have a weird, I have a weird life, obviously, uh, in that I, I kind of been doing a lot of things, and it actually was serendipitous. I, after graduating from undergrad, I really wanted to do something with conflict resolution, international human rights. That was sort of my passion. I ended up going to Georgetown Law School, but I was also paying my way through school. And as you can imagine, law school was expensive, and and I didn't come from wealth. My family, you know, was was lower middle class at best. And so I was trying to figure out how to hold down a job in a, in a really competitive university setting, which was taking a ton of my time. And I had an idea with a friend of mine to start a company called sportstalk.com. And we had this idea about creating a sports website. This is in 1996. So, you know, when the internet was still the wild, wild west. And, you know, the idea was that at the time, and again, some of this will seem strange because it's not this way anymore, though I think we were part of changing it was that the internet was, when it came to sports information, was a fairly static static proposition. It was a little bit like a newspaper published once a day. And, you know, you'd you'd wake up in the morning and, you know, you'd have links to essentially read what was in the newspaper or whatever, but then you waited until the next day. And, and it was very, it wasn't aggregated. And so our idea was, we're going to actually do something like the Dredge Report did for politics, where we were going to aggregate stories together. Uh, we started with the NFL and, and, and around teams. So anything that was written about the, I'm from Kansas City, the Kansas City Chiefs, 
that day, we were going to find the link to it. We're going to put it up. And it actually, we actually literally like borrowed the source quote from the, like the Drudge Report. Like our, our page looked like that. It was just a series of links. I mean, the, weirdly, the Drudge Report's never changed. But, you know, that's that's what it looked like. And, and because I didn't have any programming skills, so it was HTML for dummies. And, you know, programming that out. And we started to get an audience that was really interesting that the audience was people that liked the idea of being able to find all their information in one place and be able to link to it. And a lot of sports executives, sports agents, players, PR people, whatever, which this became like a a tool for them every day. And then what happened next was completely unanticipated, was not part of the business plan, was not at all what we thought was going to happen was that as we would link to stories that we didn't write, we would get reactions from general managers, from agents, from players saying, oh, that's BS, or that story's wrong, or why are you linking to it? And and we were really entrepreneurial. So we would say, well, why don't you tell us why it's wrong, right? And, And why don't you react? And often we started publishing, really, even before there were blogs, like the first sort of blogs that were essentially reacting to stories that were in the media with sources that were actually coming in. And this became like crack for sports fans. Like one, we were updating throughout the day now. Two, it seemed a little rogue that we were out there, you know, challenging the New York Times or the Washington Post or ESPN or, you know, what have you. And we developed this really rabid following of people that were clicking on our site 15, 20 times a day because they were trying to see, you know, what sort of reaction would happen next. And we also hired a coder to do something else that we weren't really wanted to do, which at the time, what again is very common now, but wasn't out there at the time, which is that then people went to message boards or discussion boards to discuss things. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if they could just comment right underneath the article? And could you essentially build a discussion board right underneath sort of every article um, that was there? And it turned out the technology for that wasn't particularly complicated. It's just not sort of what people were doing. They were sending them somewhere else. And then we start, we called it the rant page. And, you know, and it started that space where people could really, you know, engage in all of that. We expanded the NBA, we expanded the baseball. And by the time that we sold our company to ESPN in 2001, we were the third or fourth most trafficked sports website in the United States. And we had no central office. I worked from Kansas City. My partner worked from California. We had four or five other people that worked for us spread all around the world in a very virtual office. All of them were essentially freelancing. Most of the people started writing for us for free, and and we were we were we were making a ton of money off advertising, and and then the dot com bubble burst right around two thousand and one, and we saw that advertising revenue go away, and we pivoted quickly, and we thought about doing the subscription model and and working on that at the time probably the only successful subscription model on the internet was the Wall Street Journal, probably the only only publication that could sell to see their stuff on the internet. And and so we decided at that point that we were going to sell the ESPN who had an idea of doing it. We thought leveraging their brand with ESPN with the work that we were doing could sell subs. And and so our company then I moved over to ESPN to run that what was called the ESPN Insider at the time to sell subs. It started as a disaster. It moved to a huge success. But in the meantime, like I said, I was in law school saying conflict resolution. That's what I was doing. It had nothing to do with any of this. And and around 2004, 2005, several years into my work with ESPN, and now I was writing for ESPN. I was on camera for ESPN. Again, all just sort of serendipitous. 
I really started looking at the world and what was going on in the world post 9-11 and looking at my own values and my own life and deciding as much as I love this and I loved it, you know, being able to go to NBA games, you know, meeting Michael Jordan, you know, all that stuff. I loved it. I felt like I had more skills and more to offer the world than telling you who was going to draft who or who was going to get traded. And it was actually a conversation in Africa with the Kemi Mutombo that decided I'm going to go back into conflict resolution. Just before we move off of this, can you talk about your unique relationship? <laughs> like basically like forecasting and speculating about the NBA draft? Because that's pretty unique. Yeah. And so what happened is I took all the sources with me to, to ESPN. And I was in constant, I mean, my job really, I, you know, I wrote a lot, but my job was really, I was talking to NBA people all day, sometimes scouts, sometimes agents, sometimes, you know, front office people. And I was getting their take on everything that was happening in the league. And people were talking to me because so many people were talking to me that I became this sort of repository of information, much of which I couldn't publish. You know, a lot of off the record stuff or what have you. But, you know, we'd be trading information is essentially what we'd be doing. And then when something would break, a story would break, a player was going to get traded or trade talks or whatever, you know, a lot of people would call me and, and tell me, okay, now, now's the time, right? And the you know, same thing was sort of happening with the draft. I wasn't actually, I think this was a misnomer. I have my own opinions about what player might be a good draft prospect or who might, you know, be the next great star in the NBA. But I actually believed, and, you know, th this is sort of my, my quantitative background a little bit in the wisdom of crowds and the wisdom of experts and the idea that if I talk to 20 NBA scouts about who the best prospect in the draft, the taking all 20 of them and their opinion and averaging that out would be better than mine, right? And so that as I put together big boards or mock drafts or anything else like that, I was essentially trying to harness the wisdom of the crowd. But if you know anything about wisdom of crowds, the wisdom improves when the crowds are experts on things, when they actually know what they're talking about, right? Then the wisdom of crowds actually increases better. And so that just was my reporting style of getting in. And that's what I did. I spent most of my day, it was totally unsexy. I actually had people saying, oh, I want to follow you for the day. And I'm like, you're going to be sitting in a desk hearing me talk on the phone all day. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what you're going to be doing. I mean, that, that was really my life. And, and then, you know, turning that into, you know, who's going to get drafted, who's going to get traded, what, and what, what have you. But that, that was really the process. And, it, it, you know, the one thing that I really enjoyed about it was I made a lot of relationships. I had a lot of relationships with a lot of people I'm in the league. I got to know them as people, not just as, you know, players, coaches, what have you. And, you know, often our conversations would turn. Interestingly, when they found out I had a conflict background, or I have a problem with my boss right now, or we have this player that, you know, is not doing things, you know, what do you think we should do? Or, you know, frankly, I have a problem at home. And it was really interestingly in those sorts of settings that I started easing my way back into conflict resolution by, you know, just sort of having these conversations and, and, and literally sometimes with teams, like a player was in a holdout and they were, they, and the front office and the agent weren't talking anymore. And I would be on a phone call sort of helping them work through it to break the, you know, break the impasse. You know, that was literally stuff that I was doing you know, behind the scenes. And I had a real passion for it. And I just sort of recognized one of these things entertains people, which is important. I think it's important that we have entertainment. I think sports is a great distraction. I, I do think that sports has extremely positive value that way, where I could be helping people resolve conflict. And, and to me, just personally, that was a greater good to spend more time and resources on. You completely won me over to that is, can you talk about, let's just give a quick plug for peace players. Yeah. And so one of the cool things 
where my worlds merged in an interesting way is, so I think I was telling you, and I think it was 2004 or, or early 2005, I went to a basketball camp in Africa with Dikembe Mutombo, who was an NBA player um, who was incredible, but he gave almost all of his money back to people of the Congo, to South Africa, to building schools, to building hospitals, healthcare clinics, just an amazing humanitarian and human being. And I went with him on a trip as a journalist for ESPN to write about this basketball without borders in Africa, which was the first time this was happening and, and trying to develop more African talent to come out into the NBA. But he was also doing libraries and schools. And it was in that conversation that, you know, I was asking him about his dual life, basketball player, but also this humanitarian who was doing all this sort of stuff and about his values and it just started reaching on me. My life was out of balance and, and, and I needed to find more balance. And he was inspiring me to find that, you know, balance in my life and that, you know, the money that I was making wasn't the only thing that mattered. And, you know, in his case, he could have had mansions and multiple cars or whatever. He lived in a, in, in a modest two-story home and drove, drove a Honda Accord, right? Because he was using it in a different way and using his influence in a different way. And so I came back and I told ESPN, you know, I'm going to start pursuing a conflict. And, you know, we had, a, it was tough. I mean, you know, you know what happens in those sorts of situations? They start offering you more money to stay. Oh, you're unhappy. Maybe it's about this. Maybe it's about that. And it was, it was really challenging, but I decided to go out to the university of BYU Hawaii um, where I'm teaching because they were starting a conflict resolution program that included kids from 80 countries all around the world. That was really interesting. I thought it'd be a great training ground. I really love teaching and education. But I met these brothers, Brendan and Sean Tui, who had started a basketball program that brought together kids from divided communities together through the game of basketball. And they, they started in Northern Ireland with Catholics and Protestants. They'd moved to South Africa. Um, they were doing work in South Africa. But when I met them in 2005, they were just getting ready to launch a program in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians. And, and this was right when I was in the transition. I was transitioning away from the NBA. I was only just doing some part-time work there. I was doing a lot more resolution. And I'm like, I actually think this will work. I'd actually been studying this in grad school. And even though I don't think Brendan and Sean knew the theory behind it, they were former college basketball players that just believed that kids that learned to play together could learn to live together. And I think that was the, the entire premise of the nonprofit at the time. Which, end, which ends up being a good premise. Yeah, it's a really, really good premise. It's actually really catchy. There was actually a lot of really deep substantive work that actually could be done through that premise. And so I offered to come down and do an article about them and a little video about peace players in the Middle East just in the first few months that they are operating. And it was there that I fell in love with the program. I fell in love with the people. Afterwards, I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to really write any more stories about you, but I want to help. I want to volunteer. And that was 15 years ago. And I probably may, and I thought, you know, I'll come back. I'll do a couple of trainings. You know, I'll make two or three more visits to this program. I, I you know, I want to help. I've made over 50 visits to peace players over the last 15 years. Uh, I sit on their board um, of directors right now. Right now, I've engaged in a lot of work for them, especially around the U.S., where they're thinking about racial equity um, and justice in Detroit, Baltimore, Brooklyn, L.A., Chicago. And, and I truly believe, you know, this is one of the most innovative nonprofits that's out there. They just had NYU do a six-year study about their work in the Middle East, independent sort of research about what's happening. 
the changes that are happening in the people and the communities is is the gold standard of what's sort of happening. And while you can't see it from far away, when you actually go in those communities from the last 15 years, you are seeing not just changes in individuals, but changes in communities and how they're beginning to interact with each other now. And what people think is impossible on well, the Middle East, they'll never get along. There are pockets, and I emphasize pockets, I'm not saying the whole country, I'm not saying that all this is solved, but there are pockets of communities now that are seeing each other and interacting with each other differently. And and basketball was sort of the impetus for that for that to happen. Well, there's there's such great stories about it in the book. Everybody should be going to dangerouslovebook.com to get this book. I did it on Audible. I'll be for sure re-listening to this one over the years. And, you know, I think there's, I think there's so many great stories of, you know, kids who, kids who would never have anything to do with those kids ever who end up friends, but also parents and aunts. And like, you've told me so many great stories that are just like, it's like shocking how effective it is when I hear those stories from you. Several years ago, we came, came out to do a project and we, I was invited to a dinner and it was in Jerusalem and we came to this dinner and there was, you know, 25, 30 Israeli families and 25, 30 Palestinian families all having dinner, music together, interacting with each other, other talking to each other. They knew each other because of their kids. And, and then the kids did a presentation, you know, to their families. And, you know, part of me is sitting there saying, anybody would not believe me that I was here right now, that this was happening. Women in their hijab, the kippahs on these are these are not sellout Israelis or Palestinians. These are our deep believers in their cause and their faith that have found a way to see the humanity of each other. That are comfortable enough to sort of go at a dinner party together. That are enough that they're following each other's dietary rules and restrictions and asking questions about what that looks like, and so that we can sort of make this this happen. The kids have their arms around each other. They're dancing together. They're dragging mom and dad out onto the dance floor at times. And you just, you look at it and say, this shouldn't be happening, but it is happening. And it's incredibly powerful. You know, for me, I I have to say your stories have made that feel so much more alive for me because in certain ways, the conflict over there, it almost feels like a movie. I haven't been there. Do you know what I mean? And, and like, it, it can almost be like a comic book, the way it gets described, right? But then the, like when you don't, I think not having lived somewhere that divided, right? Like that, that much where you probably have a family member or you probably have a, at least extended family member who has been a casualty of this situation in one form or another. Like, do you know what I mean? Like the, the real deep hurt of war and conflict and terrorism and overreactions and, you know, like. I think for so many of the rest of us, that sounds like a storybook, like the like the American Revolution or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so when I've been able to hang with you and and you know taking your classes and these kind of things, it's become so real of like just how bitter that is, and currently bitter, not historical World World War II Nazi bitter. <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? Right. So when I've when I've been able to get more of that feeling, what it feels like to be there. And then you tell the success stories. It's had so much of a bigger effect on me. But I think I think one of the stories I'd love if you could tell, and tell if you don't want to, it's okay. But can you tell the when the program was getting canceled and you had to go meet with the guy from Moss and the 
hood over the head and AK-47s in the basement? Yeah, yeah, I can. It's not in the book. And and one of the reasons it was in the book was, one of the reasons I wrote the book was, you know, I had taken so many lessons from that. Obviously, I've worked with companies. I've worked in, you know, lots of different settings. One of the things that I feel like is people that feel like conflict is impossible in these really deep said, yes, maybe, you know, on a certain level, things can get there. But you know, I can't tell you how many people that would stop me in a grocery store and say, why are you working in the Middle East? Why are you putting your life at risk? That, that, that Nothing is ever going to change between those people. And the same thing when I go and, and do consulting work or conflict with, with organizations, you're never going to get that department to change. As long as that guy's the head of that department, nothing's ever going to change. And this sort of self-defeating view that we sort of have of conflict, yet I had all these experiences of, of really bad conflict where people changed and were able to sort of collaborate and like, how do I get those stories to you? And also sort of help outline how it happened, right? Because the the reason that we're so negative about conflict, Jess, is because we have a self-defeating view of it, right? We go into it with all the sort of wrong ways of seeing it and seeing others that we're in conflict with. And then we invite the very thing that we wish not to happen. And, And Arbinger uses this term collusion. And it, it's so difficult to see. And I think sometimes even when people go through Arbinger workshops and they hear collusion, they don't actually think it applies to their like really hardcore conflict. Like, okay, yes, I'm seeing this person as an object. I'm, you know, I'm going to work through this. And the answer is it does. It absolutely applies. And, and I wrote the book as a way to sort of think about whatever conflict you are going through in your life right now. I want to speak to you for a minute about it. And I want you to learn from everything from struggles that I've had with my teenage daughter to, you know, things that I've worked on in the workplace to the international stuff that I've done with the Middle East, because there's a thread that runs through all of it and, and really sort of giving, giving hope. And so I'm segueing to the story that, that, that you want me to tell because I originally it was the opening chapter of the book before I sort of realized, I think this is this is too sort of intimidating to what I really want the average reader sort of pick up and not be sort of thinking about working with Hamas in a, in a, you know, negotiation, right? That's, that's not in the like life experience of most people. Though I will ask you as you're listening to the story on the podcast to be thinking about who the Hamas is in your life, um, right? Because it's really sort of interesting to the extent that, you know, and Chip and I were actually sort of going back and forth the other day about violence and, you know, well, what about active shooters? You know, like, well, you, you know, you need to use violence against active shooters, to which my response is, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's a case where it says, but how often do we treat people in our life as active shooters when they're not active shooters? Yeah, I mean, they're not. I mean, you know, if you want to literally say active shooter, okay, fair enough. But there's tons of people in my life that I actually treat that way uh, and see that way, even though they're not. And, and that's what happened in the story that you're asking. So this was very early on in my conflict work. And I got invited to mediate a dispute between a village that was an Islamic village and a nonprofit that was trying to bring together Jews and Muslims through a dialogue sort of program. And there was some success with that program. Then it got, when Hamas won elections in the the early 2000s, it, it got shut down. Coexistence programs kind of were looked down upon. And, and one of the people that was working with the program tried to go in and do it anyway, just sort of do it on the, on the sly. Eventually he was caught, he was beaten, he was threatened that if he ever came back again, 
you know, something worse might happen um, to him. But he was really passionate about the program and started, started reaching out. I didn't know him personally, but, you know, through through a network of people, which is often sort of how this is the case, it, it's sort of it, like, who's crazy enough to actually sort of go in and try to negotiate this? And, and the answer um, was me. And there was some motivation behind it. 9-11 was really impactful to me. I wanted to just sort of do something to heal that rift, especially that rift, you know, with the Muslim world. It's very hard to know what it is that I can do or how I can get, you know, a sort of foothold sort of in that space. I was still fairly young. I didn't have a lot of professional experience yet. It wasn't like the State Department or someone was going to hire me um, yet to do it. And so this seemed like a real opportunity for me to make a difference. And so I talked to some conflict professors before. I talked to a lot of different people about what I should do. I, I studied up. But there was one critical thing that I didn't do. One of my students came in right before um, I, I left and gave me a copy of a uh, pre-publication copy of the book in the Anatomy of Peace by the Arbinger Institute and told me, you need to read this. You're a really good professor. You have really great ideas about conflict, but you're missing something. And this is what you need to read. And I was offended. I was like, who are you? You tell me as a student, like, I, you're going to tell me after all my schooling and all this, that what, what I need to read. Um, that's the opposite, right? The relationship's the opposite way. I tell you what you need to read. On this, but I was polite. Thank you very much. But I didn't read it. She, go ahead, Jess. Can, can I pause you there? Yeah. I, I have this Chad Ford book list. It's an email you sent me from like 2013 that I still save. And I go back to and I read Letterock, like The Moral Imagination, and these books you gave me back then that have had profound impacts on my life. And I don't know if I've ever thanked you on it, but but I've kept that list all these years. Those were really cool books. And those were books I was reading, but I wasn't reading Arbinger. Who's the Arbinger Institute? She comes back into my office literally the day I'm leaving, like crying. You've got to read this. You're going to get killed. You don't read this. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. I'm going to put it in my bag. I'll read it. It's a really long flight from Hawaii to the Middle East. And I don't read it. The whole whole flight. I did everything else but read it. And, you know, I ended up going into the village and doing all the sort of things that, that I thought were sort of appropriate and right. Getting to know people, talk to people, build relationships, whatever. When it kind of finally came time to do the negotiation, to get the start program with the community leaders that were in charge, it was a pretty intense experience. At the time, there was, you know, I don't know what other way to say it, there was a war going on, a sort of more of a covert war between Israel and Palestinian. Hamas leaders were suspicious. Who is this white American kid coming in? Is he part of, you know, is he a special agent? Is he part of Mossad? Like, is he CIA, you know? They don't know. And they don't know whether I'm there to harm them, whether I'm there to get intelligence, whether I'm really there to talk about this stupid program, you know, between, you know, kids or whatever. And so their reaction was to pick me up, drive me to a house, walk me through the house where there was another car waiting that was going to take me to another house, walk me through that house, take me another direction. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like thing, like what is happening here? And I don't even know where I am anymore. And which I think was intended in case someone was following me or what have you. And eventually when I went to the place that was there, there was a man in a ski mask wearing, uh, holding an AK-47 sort of guarding the door. Now my heart's beating out of my chest. Do people even know where I am? Oh my gosh, you know, grainy images of, you know, videos that I'd seen on the internet start playing through my mind. And, you know, my heart's beating out of my chest, but, you know, I'm trying to keep my cool and we're going to start the negotiation. One of the things that I had been told that was often customary is that it's actually very rude to start a negotiation with the negotiation. You start talking about family. This is just sort of pro cultural protocol. So I had a picture of my family ready. We exchanged pictures. We talked, you know, made some small talk about that stuff. And then we got in the negotiation. And, and it was brutal. Every technique that I was trying, everything that I had learned in grad school, everything that I'd learned in my somewhat limited experience 
you know, as a mediator was falling short. It was just like hitting a brick wall, you know, over and over again. And, and they were getting angrier. I was getting more upset. I kept thinking they were unreasonable. I, I'm not sure what they thought, but I'm, I'm sure that they thought, you know, the same thing. And eventually it just reached a head where at one point in the negotiation, they just stood up, slammed their hand down and said, this negotiation's over. You've wasted our time. Leave our village. Don't ever come back. And I was devastated. You know, at the time that that happened, you know, the thing that really stood out to me was I'd failed. And here I wanted this big chance. I wanted to make a difference. I'd done all this stuff and I failed spectacularly. In fact, I'm pretty clear that they're more angry now than they were before I walked into the end of the room. And, you know, and so as I'm getting ready to walk out and, you know, one part of the story that I left out is they locked us in a room and the person that had the key left. And I think, again, it was some sort of safety thing or, you know, whatever. I'm not sure what it was. And so they're like calling for that person to sort of come back. I'm, I'm thinking, what else can I say? What else can I do? Clearly, there's got to be something, you know. And every time that in my mind, I'm like trying to pull something out of the universe, right? To say this picture of this man and his family, like keeps coming back to me and I shake it out of my head, you know, okay, I can't think about that. I got to think about what it is I'm supposed to say. And it was like the third time as now we're up and like, you know, getting ready to leave that occurs to me, look at that picture. And, and, and what I did was I, in my mind's eye, I looked and I noticed something that I didn't really, didn't really register with me the first time I looked at the picture was that this man had a young boy standing next to him. That boy was looking up to his dad the way that, you know, sometimes young boys look up their dads like, my dad's the greatest in the world. This loving look. And, and, and this man that had been quite angry in this negotiation had this look of a proud father, you know, on his face. And something pierced me. Like it pierced me deeply. And all of a sudden, I just started seeing this man differently. And then the words came. And you know what I told him is I said, you know, look, I, I, I spent a little bit of time in your village and people were really hospitable to me. And it was a really awesome, awesome experience for me. And I got to know and appreciate your culture and your people. And I know things are hard and I know things are brutal right now. And in fact, you know, economically things are so bad that a lot of times kids don't even have school to go to or things to do around the street, throwing rocks, and that the situation is right for someone to come along and ultimately tell you, look, the only way you can make a difference in the world is to strap a bomb around your waist, walk into a bus or restaurant somewhere and blow yourself up. That's the only way that you're actually going to make an impact in the world. You and I are fathers and we don't want that for our kids. And uh, he paused what seemed like forever. I'm sure it was only a few seconds. Um, and then a tear came down his face. And he said, the program will begin on Monday. I mean, he walked out. That was it. And, you know, as I was going back to the hotel, had all these crazy emotions, like elated. Oh my gosh, this amazing thing happened. Confused. Wait, what? 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 How did that turn like 180 degrees, you know, based off of that one comment? And I'm, I'm literally in my hotel and my bed, like taking notes. Okay. You should mention fathers every time. I, it was the father, you know, it was the father comment, you know? You know, I, I was trying to figure it out. And then on the way home, a much more humble Chad pulled the anatomy piece out of out of his bag and began reading it. And about halfway through, a light bulb went on my head that changed my conflict work forever. And it was simply this. I walked into that room thinking they were the problem and that for the problem to change, they needed to change. And my job was to change them, right? And because of that, the real problem in the room was me, that I was the problem in the room. Because as long as I wasn't seeing their humanity, as long as I thought that they were the problem, as long as I was blaming and horribleizing and doing all that stuff towards them, they were going to see me and treat me in exactly the same way back. But the minute that I changed, and what really happened with that picture, as I, as I was reading Anatomy of Peace, and it came to me, 
was that I had moved from seeing them as an object to seeing them as people, that my heart had turned from a heart of war to a heart of peace. And that that became the invitational move. It wasn't actually the words that I said. It was that I actually saw this man for the first time as a, as a human being, as someone who cared about their children and that might hold different political or religious beliefs than me, but was trying to do their best in the world um, for his people and for his family. And until I saw that and acknowledged that and honored that, and, and made that connection, nothing else can change. But when I changed, it created a new person and a new invitation for him um, to change. And then I've been going about this all wrong, right? At the core, conflict transformation is not about getting other people to turn. It's not about getting other people to change. It's about understanding fundamentally the role that I play in conflict and having the courage to change and turn and understanding the power of that and, and the invitational space that it creates to invite other people um, to change. And that's, that's a lesson just that I'm still learning. It's a huge part of what Dangerous Love is about and, and was deeply influenced by Anatomy of Peace and, and, and the stories that, that I learned there. And, and I find that in my own life and in teaching to others, it's also a really, really hard concept to sink in because we're in conflict, we want to blame. When we're in conflict, we're convinced that actually the solution to the problem exists some, somewhere outside of me. And once that thing changes, everything will go away. I don't know why I had you tell that story because it immediately brought up memories of Chad Ford making fun of me in class for trying to hide the fact that I'm bawling. Yeah. He's, he's bawling. <laughs> As you're listening, he's, he's yeah, bawling. Yeah. I, I'm always crying when you're telling these stories of like just how much better life can get. You know, I think about the number one thing I plagiarize from you, okay, is... When you, I remember the one class where you taught me about the idea of, I don't even know if you call it this. I think you do. I call it the, the long, short way and the short, long way. Yeah. You call it that, don't you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's a chapter in the book. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. And just this idea of like, it really doesn't like, I don't know. I think about it like a credit card. I can try like sticks and carrots and all these things. It's just like paying interest only payments on a credit card. It's going to come back again. <laughs> You're going to have to work on it again next month where like, I feel like your your version of like spend time with them separately until they can actually think about each other like real life humans, you know, like Arbinger would say see people as people. Yeah. And then put them together. Right. Yeah. And it's like that might take a really long time, Jess. But essentially you're wasting your time until that has happened. Yeah. You know? And and it's like I know it sounds painful, Jess. Go ahead and save up and pay cash. That's what yeah. I'm telling you. This is the message that I got from Chad. Yeah, it's it's a paradox, right? I have to, to go fast. I first have to go slow. I'm not going to get to collaborative problem solving, which I think is the sort of goal. And to me, one definition I use of conflict in the book is that it's our inability to collaboratively problem solve, right? Whenever, whether I'm an entrepreneur, you know, whether I'm a manager, whether I'm a leader in an organization, whether I'm a, a parent or a spouse or whatever, when, I, when a problem comes my way and I'm not able to solve it with the people that are part of the, part of the issue, conflict arises. If you actually think about it, on a day-to-day -day basis, we are collaboratively problem solving right and left entrepreneurs especially, right? You're constantly figuring out, in fact, so much of an entrepreneur is, I have a problem to solve in the world and I'm gonna create a product or a service or you know, something to sort of solve that problem for people. And so you know, we pride ourselves on being really collaborative, right? But then something or someone comes along, right? That mucks that up and now it's a mess. And, and now it's, it's, you know, we're stuck. And that's where conflict goes um, for people. And so a lot of people, what they say is, okay, we just need to get back in that moment to collaborative problems. So I'm going to lock us in a room together and we're going to fight and fight and fight until this comes out. 
and then we end up fighting, fighting, fighting. It goes on forever. And and you know what I've learned as a mediator is that that's not actually the best way to get to collaborative problem solving. I agree that collaborative problem solving is the goal, but as long as I but think about collaboration and what it actually requires for a minute. It actually requires that I have an understanding in my my world of what I need or what I want um, out of this, and I have an understanding of what you need and what you want. And that I value those two things equally, right? And and so mine's not more valuable or less valuable. It's not just about your wants or it's not just about mine. It's about us. And that we're going to roll up our sleeves together and we're going to work this problem until we find a solution that really works for both of us sustainably. And I can't do that when I see you as an object. I can't do that when actually your needs, wants, and desires don't matter to me. In fact, they're disgusting to me or they're ridiculous or they're you're selfish or you're spoiled or you know, whatever that is, I can't get there. So as long as I'm stuck there, I can't get the collaboration. You know, there's not just, there's so many applications as as people at home with our family and our communities and stuff. But in entrepreneurship, there's so many opportunities for conflict because there's high stress and there's imminent death of the business at all points. You know, in in investments, there's there's just so many opportunities for conflict with with lenders, within with other investors, with the CEO you've backed, with the with the county that said they were going to give you the zoning and then they don't. You know, right? Yeah. And I think the most powerful thing for me, there's so many people with theories, but I think when I hear those really breakthrough stories, that's that's the stuff that like marries me to actually practicing theory. Let's do this. We're going to try and be done here in like six minutes so you can be able to get to your faculty thing. Okay. Can you tell, would it be okay to tell the story of when you're in the Middle East and the guys thought you were there from the State Department <laughs> and, and, and there was no chance they were going to listen to you and you had to kind of let the wind go out of the sails and then the exercise you did? Can you, can you tell that one? Yeah, I think I can tell that in six minutes. So this is much later in the process with Peace Players where I started doing some work for the U.S. State Department on the bigger issue. And I'd been scheduled to speak to a number of leaders in Ramallah and the West Bank, some Palestinian leaders and the State Department had set it up. And it was right during Arab Spring when there was an uprising in Egypt against an authoritarian government, sort of a people's uprising. And the US was sort of sitting on the fence. I just got to sort of give a policy background of sort of why people are upset. And here were these Palestinians who were really upset at the U.S. response. Like you talk about democracy, you talk about free elections. Here they're sort of overthrowing the dictator, but because you 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 buy oil from them, you're sitting on the sidelines and what have you. So, as I'm introduced, they don't. I'm introduced, I think, correctly, but it doesn't register. I'm not a State Department employee. I'm not a I'm not a representative of government. I have nothing to do with U.S. policy in the Middle East or anything else. And so what starts in the conversation is a number of speeches by people in the room condemning the U.S. approach, roasting me and the U.S. over these things. And I can't get a word in edgewise. I'm like, I try multiple times to sort of interrupt and say, I'm not saying your concerns are valid or not valid. I'm just, you're, you're really barking up the wrong tree. Like you, you've got the wrong guy. This is a Wendy's, you know, you know if you know that joke. But, but it, it doesn't stop. And after a while, I'm like looking at what I've got planned. I'm like, dude, there's no way I'm going to get to this. Like, there's no way we're going to get here, um, especially with the feeling that's in the room. But also, I wanted to be alive to the humanity of that feeling. And the feeling was one of frustration. The feeling of one is being stuck in conflict for a really long time with no really good solutions going forward. And who are you with all your own problems? And you're screwing up other places in the world coming in and telling us you know, to get better. And so finally, when I got a chance to speak, I, I decided, okay, I'm gonna do something really, really different here. 
I'm just going to acknowledge that we can't solve those problems. And so I asked them, you know, we've got an hour and a half left and then I'm gone. How many of you think that we're going to be able to solve the Middle East pro uh, peace process here in the next hour and a half? And everybody laughs and they're laughing. Of course, and I said, I, look, I, I want to tell you, I, I, I agree with you. We're, we're not going to be able to do it. What about the, the fight between Hamas and Fatah, two political groups that are both Palestinian that essentially engaged in a civil war with each other? What about if we tackled that today? Do you think we could solve that in the next hour and a half? And again, the, the laughter, you know, came from the group. Okay, what about just in your town of Ramallah, you know, all the sort of things that have sort of happened just right here in the city right now? Could we tackle all of that in the next hour and a half? No. So let me ask you another question. How has all of those things impacted your family? I'm just curious. How's it impacted your marriage? How's it impacted your kids? How's it impacted you just personally? All of that stuff that you suffer through every day. And people just started telling stories. And, you know, one after one, they started telling stories. I said, so look, we don't have a lot of time. But what if I told you, I think in the next hour, we could do something about that. We could do something about our relationships together with our family. It, would, would you be interested in doing that? And, and they nodded their heads. And we spent the next hour talking about our families and talking about the one thing that we could do today to actually start to see uh, people uh, as people. And then we started to think about like, what would happen if all of us in our families just would go home and do something differently today? Like, what would be the impact of that? And we discussed that and said, okay, now let's think about Ramallah for a minute as a collection of a bunch of families, right? That's what a city is, is a collection of a bunch of families. What if enough people did that? What would happen in Ramallah? People start talking about change. Now, what if Hamas families and Fatah families were doing this as well? Like what would sort of happen? We sort of discussed that for a minute. And I said, now I know this one's hard and I know this one's gonna be hard for you, but what if Israeli families were doing this as well? Because here's what I'm gonna to commit to you. I'm working with Israeli families. I'm working with Palestinian families. I'm working with Hamas families, I'm working with Fatah families. And I'm gonna keep working at this for the rest of my life if that's what it takes. And so I, I, I'm gonna promise you we're gonna do that. But today, the most important thing is that I need your help. And the help that I need is for you to go home and work on your family. And you know, as people left and they filed out the door, people basically said, I think you just kind of told us that we're full of BS. Like, you know, we're talking about all this stuff and we're not sort of taking stuff in our home and we are like applauding you out the door and, you know, and saying sort of thank you. And I said, yeah, because it's it's what we need to hear in conflict. And so, you know, I, I would end on this, Jess, no, no matter where you're at in conflict in your life, and, and one of the reasons I wrote Dangerous Love and there's a bunch of exercises in the book and everything else, just practicing this on one person has a powerful impact on you. It will have a powerful impact on them. And as you're practicing dangerous love on one person, you'll get better at practicing it with more people or in your organization or wherever it is that you need to go. Well, and I know we're out of time and I'm going to plug dangerouslovebook.com again. But I think my favorite thing from that story, as I've heard, as we've talked about it in years in the past is, they were like viciously attacking you yeah. and you got to, you, as far as I remember, you grabbed a pen or a whiteboard or something and said, is there anything else? What else could you put on that list? What yeah. else is going wrong? And like, instead of defending yourself, you just diffuse things. And I, I've been lucky enough to use that in my life. And I appreciate that lesson of everybody goes and reads the book. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Okay. Bye everyone.